You're listening to the Townsville Chamber cast. Essential information, ideas and news that matters to the business community of Townsville. In this episode of Townsville Chamber cast, Claire is back in the office busily preparing for our business awards. So, it's over to Ross to do the introduction. It's my pleasure today to welcome Paula Jarakowski is the Professor of Strategic Management at the University of Queensland's Business School. She is an expert in insurance and reinsurance markets, having studied different aspects of the global industry and released a range of industry reports, masterclasses, academic papers and widely acclaimed book, Making a Market for Acts of God with Oxford University Press. Her current research examines how governments and markets around the world can better address the growing threat of extreme weather and terrorism disaster, and to increase the links between insurance and resilience. Look, it, it really is a pleasure to have uh, you on the um, on the Townsville Chamber cast today, Paula, because uh, we've done a couple of podcasts about reinsurance pool, the reinsurance pool for cyclone and flood-related damage. We've done multiple things on questions that we've been asked about it, and we've given all this feedback, but... Um, you know, industry does talk to me and they say, what, what is an actual reinsurance pool? How do they work? And uh, I was absolutely, it was just so great to, to meet you the other day, find out about all the fantastic work uh, you're doing and, and for you to join us here in the studio and talk, talk all things insurance and, and reinsurance pool. So, so Paula, tell us a little bit about, or, or why don't we just make it a, what, a 101 of what a reinsurance pool is? Sure. So I think just to explain the risk transfer process, so you start with what is called an insured or a policyholder. So they then transfer their risk of a disaster to an insurance company and they pay a premium for that. And that premium means that that if they have a disaster, the insurance company will help pay for the losses. Now, the insurance company then also buys um, an insurance premium because the insurance company can cope with a few losses coming through at any time. But if we have something like a cyclone or a flood or an earthquake, we've got too many losses at once. So the insurance pool also buys an insurance product from a reinsurer, which is just a very big insurance product, so that if all of the properties go at once, it then passes those claims through to its reinsurer. Now, when we bring in a reinsurance pool, we put that between the insurer and the reinsurer. And that reinsurance pool will act as a reinsurer within that country or that region. It'll take all those premiums from the insurance companies and it will provide the guarantee to pay if there's a lot of losses uh, simultaneously to the insurers, the policyholders. That's you and me assuming we're insured. Now, what that reinsurance pool can then do is it can just hold all the risk itself. It can go out and buy a product itself in the marketplace. Uh, So it can make the the purchase to the global reinsurance market, or it can pass that risk to the um, government balance sheet. Um, There's two main ways that reinsurance pools work. One is called what we call, so why does it work? I mean, it's just one more thing in the risk transfer process. Why does it work? Well, so the one way that it can work is what we call risk removal. So it removes the risk out of a private market altogether and puts some of that or all of that on a government balance sheet. So we have a terrorism pool in Australia. Some of that risk is in on the government balance sheet. Some is in the pool the reinsurance pool, some is in the reinsurance market because they buy a product. And then what's above that is on the government balance sheet. So that's the kind of 
removal process. It can also use what we call a redistribution process. Um, so if we think about it, insurance is, you know, insurance 101 is the premiums of the many pay for the losses of the few. What we're talking about in a disaster is that we'll have a lot of losses. So it's not the premiums of the many, the losses of the few, it's the losses of the many, but probably concentrated in one region where the disaster happened. So a reinsurance pool can also be given a mandate by government to say, okay, you redistribute the risk. You're allowed to have a little top slice of every insurance policy in this country and use that as the premiums of the many to help subsidise the losses of this few under a major disaster. And that's called redistribution because they redistribute the risk of the disaster in one region across the country. So it sits inside the insurance chain between the insurer and the reinsurer. It can remove the risk to the government balance sheet or it can redistribute the risk across the country or a combination of both. And in fact, our terrorism pool does both. Yeah, now I mean, when we first wrote our first submission, I guess, about reinsurance pools, we, we looked at the reinsurance pool corporation and we looked at how they distributed risk. You know, uh, over a million people, it's about 16%, 100,000 to a million people, it's around that 5 or 6%. And then if you're, in a, in a, if you're building, your commercial building's in, a, in an area where it's under uh, 100,000 people, it drops down to about 2.6%. And, um, and, and that reinsurance pool, I guess, has, you know, been in operation since about 2003 um, and it then uh, it, I think it's got about 14.4 billion dollars in it uh, because people have been contributing that some people didn't even know that they were contributing to that but I think I, I really want to hone in on that one point you made Paula about the definition of insurance and it's it's spreading risk it's it it is um, you know everyone contributing to to compensate the few that are affected um, a, a reinsurance pool effectively is just selling that risk on. So insurance companies are essentially doing exactly what they're telling their customers to do, and that's that's spread risk. Uh, Well, they're passing it to the reinsurer to spread risk. Insurance companies do do a degree of spreading risk themselves. That's how they manage to pay the losses. But they always need to to manage the concentration of losses in one area. They always, you know, will need that to, to, to hedge themselves against a major disaster. Um, and that's why they buy reinsurance. So, I, um, and mm, yep. Yeah. So I guess that it, it does lead into a, an obvious question. Australia, you know, a massive land area, huge continent, only twenty six million people here. Is is Australia a, a viable place to sell insurance? Like, are we insurable? Wow. Well, that's a big question right now. I have to say, um, so I think we need to determine what kind of insurable. So, I mean, I think the question we're asking ourselves here is, are we disaster insurance? So, you know, catastrophe insurance, disaster insurance, which is that really high, um, it should be an infrequent but large-scale event. That's the thing we're talking about. Because I think Australia will remain remain a, a good place to continue to do, you know, your basic things like car and all our everyday insurance. But what we're talking about here is, are they going to be good for that big disaster insurance? And I don't know if you would have seen this on the uh, ABC News yesterday. There was a report which is actually based on the um, Actuaries Institute, the Institute of Climate Actuaries. They've released a report that shows that actually already 10% of households or 1 million households in Australia are finding insurance unaffordable. 
And by that, they mean how many weeks of your pre-tax income are you spending on your premiums? Um, And so they're defining in their report that a vulnerable household, which is one in 10 households, um, are paying an average of 7.4 weeks pre-tax income on their premiums. Now, I think we have to assume the Actuaries Institute's got a pretty good handle on this. So when you start to think about that, um, and and then they do some modelling of different trajectories going forward... I think we have to say that there is a real question here about vulnerability and affordability. So if we say that people are spending more than they can afford, then it doesn't matter if there's insurance. They just can't afford it. So under those circumstances, I think we are heading towards the questions, some pretty difficult questions. And and I know, like, look, I I, I haven't seen that report, Paula, but I'll I'll be sure to to look it up now. And I mean, when we started down this, I, I mean, I guess Northern Australia has been on the, you know, we're the... We're the pointy end of the sword, if it like, when it comes to this, and 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 we got uh, numbers and statistics, you know, that are four or five years old that are already saying twenty five percent of houses, uh, you know, if we concentrate on that uh, residential house and contents, contents and building insurance, twenty five percent either didn't have it or couldn't afford it. Uh, so um, when we're spreading that out now, um, you know, we're only 6% of the insurance market in Northern Australia. So th- that's pretty alarming numbers. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And I think, though, that what this report is showing us, and I mean, it's worth it because it says, look, yes, definitely parts of Northern Australia are some of the most vulnerable communities. But it even shows that there are, there are vo- that a key point of this report is there are vulnerable people in every community and they do some really quite alarming numbers for example one in five in melbourne you know so we're we're saying that actually this is not just um them up there or them up north um this is actually us right here um and i actually think therefore that really it's very valuable that we look at what's been happening in uh northern australia because it's like the canary in the coal mine you know if it's starting to have problems then if we can look at that and we can learn about that, we can stop this, or we can at least try to arrest the problem. So I I think we should think about the fact that what you've experienced, what you've learned to do, the fact that we've brought about this reinsurance pool is actually could be potentially very valuable for Australia. Although I'm sorry that you had to go through so much pain. Yeah, yeah, I'm, that I'm, I, I didn't. I didn't really want to be that uh, that person. But I, I mean, yeah, and I think I think initially when we looked at this, we sort of went, you know. Is, assur- is Australia insurable? And, and, you know, I think four years ago, five years ago, the, the defounding answer was was yes. But, um, you know, there has been a few reports coming out since then that, that are sort of starting to highlight. I, 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 there was one earlier this year that highlighted the 10 most uninsurable suburbs by 20... Uh, sorry, they were federal electorates. So it was a bit cheeky, but uh, and, until 20, 2030. And none of them were in Northern Australia. So when, when we look at these sort of different reports and they've all got different angles i guess um yeah there was obviously some concern there around um spreading the risk you know everyone contributing to compensate the few that are affected and and i think that's the the key to insurance or well it's the definition of insurance and if we start moving away from that and and one in ten aren't participating or or one one in four up here aren't participating then then that only makes the premiums go up any even further Yes, and I think we should look at some of the reinsurance pools around the world. So I've been studying these around the world. Um, and look, some of the things I'm going to say may, be, may, may feel unpopular to some, but the point <laughs> is, what do we want insurance and reinsurance to do? 
We want it to provide a social safety net. We're very happy to outsource that social safety net to the market, and I don't have a problem with that, you know. We should pay our premiums. It should be profitable for the insurance companies to do it. In fact, we need to make sure that they can do it in a way that works with their business model because we don't, we don't want them to be like, you know, um, a financial crisis because they're taking our money but they can't afford to pay the claim. So all that is great. Yep. But when we get to a situation where that market can't work to provide the safety net society needs, then we need to ask some other questions about what could make it work. So the things I've studied, um, I can tell you a couple of things that are absolutely valuable if you want protection to be number one. And yeah. that's compulsory insurance that is um, subsidised across the country. Now, where that works very well is in France, Spain and Switzerland. And they have over 90% insurance penetration. So they're not talking about one in 10 people not being insured. Um, and it's taken for granted. The disaster component of that is all sliced off in Switzerland to an insurance company and in both Spain and France to a reinsurance company. Now, that means the private market gets to play in all the areas that it can, but it does pass through the disaster component to the state-based insurer. And that means that everybody can get a flat rate. So uh, when I say flat rate, these are multi-peril pools. So they don't say, well, you're opposed to flood and we're only dealing with flood. They say, we've got flood, we've got earthquake, we've got drought, we've got windstorm. Let's deal with all of those. And that way it's fair because you, I mean, it's pro-rated. It's, it's a flat rate, but it's pro-rated. I mean, you know, if you live in a mansion and I live in a hovel, we're playing a flat rate pro-rated to the value of our home. I'm not, you know, but in that sense, we're saying, well, you live in a valley. I live on a hill. Sometimes you are going to flood. Sometimes I'm going to have my roof blown off. Yep. And sometimes, you know, you're halfway up the hill. Aren't you lucky? But you're going to pay one way or another. It's better we pay in advance to insurance than we pay afterwards in broken communities, reconstruction, loss that we haven't gotten. You know, it will come out of your money one way or another. And, it's better it comes out in advance. And that's the whole thing. Like the whether whether governments like it or not, they are the the insurer of last resort anyway. So you know, if we have this massive amount of people in an area that that can't get it, afford it, or have it. Um, you know, they're going to have to go in and do something and it's going to cost a lot more then than everyone contributing a little um, for a long period of time to 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 minimise that risk and, and pay for it when it when it indeed does happen. So so when you're talking about a baseline of insurance, is that a is that a form of a reinsurance pool? So are they are they are the the private industry there buying the insurance off those a uh, government funded reinsur or a government backed reinsurance pool? Is that what you're saying there in those countries? Yes. Yeah, so they're yep. passing part of the premium through. So they're taking the premium through in a mark in a private market way. Yep. Look, I think a lot of citizens in those countries will be pretty unaware yeah. that the government provides this. You know, they just buy their insurance product. Um, there are things you can't leave out. The same as here, you can't actually exclude terrorism. We don't sell terrorism insurance, it's just you can't exclude it. Yep. So that's why we need a pool. Okay, so same thing, you can't exclude as an insurer these um, catas catastrophic disasters, but what you do is you pass that percentage through or above a certain threshold and you say above this threshold, um, that percentage of the premium gets paid to the state-based pool and that pool is responsible for paying the losses when it's one of these kinds of disasters. Um, so the private market, you know, is probably not making as much as it could in that area of risk. 
but then neither is it cherry picking. It's offering it to everybody. So it's not making as much as it could on some, but it is getting all of them. But so, you know, there's always swings and roundabouts in yeah, these things. Yeah, but there's an obligation there to, you know, three bedroom, one bathroom, this is what it sort of is. You know, oh, you've got 20 bedrooms and 20 bathrooms and well, this is, but but you're paying you're paying for what you're insuring and there's, there's a baseline there for everyone to access. And I think this was sort of our second recommendation when we went into this reinsurance pool was a baseline uh, of insurance for, you know, and if you've got the great, artwork and the paintings on the wall and the beautiful curtains and all of that then okay you know you're you're gonna have to pay a little bit more over and above what you uh uh, what the guy down the road with that that doesn't have that so i I think that's equitable and fair and as you say a market can compete in that space yes and you can even say and i mean so there are other ways of doing it like you can do a base level everybody gets x and over and above that if you want to insure yourself for more you can do so, but there's a sort of X level that says everybody's going to get something. So that's, you know, uh, I've, I've seen that model, and that's largely the New Zealand earthquake model. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or you've got something like Flood Re in the UK, which is a subsidised redistribution system, no removal to the government at all. It's all redistribution based on a levy on every policy. But then they actually do it by council tax bans. So, you know, you're in a lower council tax band. So that means you're lower socioeconomic typically. So you pay less. We subsidise you more. Whereas, you know, you live in a very nice suburb, which happens to be near, you know, you live in Walford-on-Thames, um, then you pay more or you pay to this. But we're not also insuring the Bentley and the Jaguar in the basement garage. We're insuring your property. You're paying more for that. But the things that the high-value assets that you've also got in there you buy your own private insurance for that bit over and above. And I think that those are models that allow a society to be protected, but also those who, um, you know, those who can afford to can choose partial insurance or can choose, you know, to top themselves up in the private market. Yeah, well, when I was over on England, in England, I was Newbold on Avon, so uh, nowhere near the Thames. So I guess we were probably a little bit, but there was some famous people on the Avon uh, River or Creek, or not least you, Ross. They've well, got one left well, now. There was a pretty famous, <laughs> uh, pretty famous writer and playwright uh, that was, yeah. on, was on Avon. So um, I'm sure someone will text in and, and tell us who. Who that might have been uh, starting with an S, I think, but uh, he wasn't far up the road. His little house, so that was um, that was pretty cool. Uh, but but so it, they do work. Uh, they do work in. Um, so you said France, Spain, and what was the other country, Paula, that you mentioned? Switzerland. Switzerland in fact, course, we yeah. um, have just done a report for the Swiss Prevention Foundation on their system because it's it's not so well known. It's just so embedded. It's been running for over a hundred years. Um, um, that we've actually just done a report from them. We'll be able to provide that to people if they'd like to look at it, actually, because it is very interesting. So in the next two months, they'll have signed that off and, may, and we'll have that available publicly if people want to read a little bit about how that system works. Fantastic. And, yeah, please um, please share that with us and we'll, we'll definitely put it up uh, and a link into this podcast when we're, when that one comes out. But so have reinsurance pools failed uh, around the world? Like, Where, where is the... Where are the tipping points where they haven't actually worked or they've been done a bit poorly? So where they tend to work least is where they... um, Okay, so we've got something like... um, And I don't want to say to use the word failure because, I mean, pools... um, That that puts it like it's the managers of the pool are doing a bad job. We may have to remember that managers of pools get given a government mandate and that government mandate is at some level because that's what their society accepts. You know, if we're not happy with what our government does, we do have choices. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so in that sense, but I mean, what we see in California, for example, um, is that only about 10% of people, maybe at yeah, the last I saw about 10% of people, are actually insured for earthquakes. So they have the California Earthquake Authority, um, but it hasn't been able to get penetration because of the way it's been designed there. And that's not the, mem- that's not the pool people's fault. Um, they've been given a pretty difficult thing to work with. Um, they've done as best they can with that. But, you know, we all know that California is highly exposed to earthquake and uh, it, it's, it's not had the effects. Part of that is because it refuses to do cross-subsidisation. You know, in, in that particular very market-based context of the USA, it's seen as, well, you know, everybody's responsible for their own risk, so we're not going to... It's risk-reflective pricing. I mean, really, all it does is it has to take you. All it is is the California earthquake story must take you if you want to buy a product, but it's going to charge you a high price for that. Mm. Um, so it doesn't get around the affordability problem. So availability without affordability is not enough. Um, and I, I, I say this without wanting to put any um, shade on a group of very hardworking people who've come up with a very good system, uh, with a very good product availability under difficult circumstances. But what we do know, and, uh, and you'll see that as well with the National Flood Insurance Program in the USA, initially they were trying to subsidise. They've ended up subsidising building on floodplains. Now they're becoming an unaffordable product. So, you know... When a government's reluctant to intervene in a market and when a market doesn't want to work hard with its government to ensure protection, you do end up with these dysfunctionalities. It works best when you get together and knock heads together and say this is a bit uncomfortable for all of us, but protection is the first thing we want to get out of this. Well, the definition of insurance is the, is the key, isn't it? Because it doesn't sound yeah. like that one's spreading risk. No, it's not. And that's the problem, really. Uh, what it does do is it allows the private market to play in every space outside of earthquake, which they're not required to, which, you know, they are required to offer earthquake. They can offer it, but they pass it straight through the California Earthquake Authority. So they meet their obligations to offer um, without having to hold the risk. But uh, anyway, the point is, it works best if you're willing to accept that a level of compulsoriness and cross-subsidisation is necessary. If you don't accept that, you get increasing dysfunctionalities. If protection is your first um, point that you want to get out of a reinsurance pool. And, and that refers back to your earlier comment around the social safety net and uh, and 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 how insurances must work in, in an economy because we, we often refer to insurance as an essential service. So without it, you know, uh, uh, things can't function. You can't borrow money. You can't uh, buy things. You can't buy a house. You, you can't get a loan. All, all those sorts of things. You, you can't win contracts to supply. All, you know, everyone will want your insurance. So it really is essential. So, um, and, and that, that's really to your point around the, the social safety net, isn't it? Yes. And I think, you know, that the private market can continue to make money. It's not saying, well, it's just all going to be, mm. you know, a socialist system it's saying where do these things need to join seamlessly so you can make a fair enough share for you but we can also make sure that everybody gets protected there are some downsides and i'm happy to talk to you about those i mean cross subsidization also has downsides well well i guess probably the a really good interlude is to you know we've got a reinsurance pool for cyclone and flood related damage now passed through our parliament in 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 march through the senate uh, just we've had a federal election, obviously, after that, uh, rolled out. We're still trying to get some price to industry and, and to start to see that. But, you know, ACCC, first report 
on the uh, on the reinsurance bill for cyclone and flood related damage due at the end of this year. Have you had a chance to have a, a bit of a look at, at this one, Paula? And 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 I guess that's probably most relevant to our our communities and, and businesses up here. Yeah, so I have had a look. I'm still digesting the latest consultation about the pricing and so forth. Um, so, so, so don't don't hold me to account on that one. But I, I am sort of trying to digest that, and I've been watching the evolution of it. And also, of course, you know, it was passing through legislation at the same time as we were having a lot of flooding. So I've also looked at some of what people might be calling for as future, you know, as uh, cyclone pool 2.0 or 3.0. So yeah, sure. Uh, I know a little about it. Well, well, tell us what's. Is there anything we've really got to be keeping a close eye on here? What, what, what? Is there anything that any red flags that you've spotted early on with the reinsurance pool for for cyclone and flood related damage? Yeah, so I think that there's two things that are going to be important out of this. So um, one of them, I would say, is the nature of the risk. So it's a it's a it's a cyclone pool, and I mean, my understanding is that it does have some storm surge and um, flood, but associated with cyclone. Now the thing is, we you know we we've had a lot of flooding. We look like we're about to have another jolly good wave of flooding um, because of the La Nina effect. And so I think that one of the things we need to be careful about here is reputational risk in that the stuff that's going to get passed through, A, it's not going to be properly in action when we first have the disaster. Uh, presuming the next La Nina, let's hope it's not as bad as what we had in February, March this year, but assuming that it is as bad or even half as bad, then people are going to say, well, where's that thing? Why isn't it working? When do I get paid by it? Yep. And of course, I mean, insurance goes, in a one-year cycle anyway. Second, we've got to get up to speed and work out how many properties are going to go in it, how insurers are going to use it to pass premiums on. So I think there's a real reputational risk there that needs to be taken care of. In addition, even when it is up and functioning, if it's not covering certain types of risk, if it's only covering like flood under certain circumstances based on particular definitions of where it happened, how long after cyclone and so forth, then we're going to get a lot of people who have flood damage but cannot be covered by this. Um, if that is the case, and I believe that they are working hard to try and make sure that that, that won't be the case, mm. um, but, you know, that's, we're going to need to get that up. Otherwise, we're going to have reputational risk because people are going to say, well, we've got one of those things and it didn't work for me. Yeah. I didn't get paid. Um, and the thing I do see with all of these types of things which we've looked at around the world is when you have one of these reinsurance pools and you have a disaster, uh, what you often do is find out what's not working in the pool. Um, now, that's a really good chance to evolve the pool and make sure that it works better if it's the right thing to do. And, and we've looked at how you know um, that actually happens, that kind of evolution. But I think we need to be alert to that, that we've got this in place. There's a good chance that there'll be many flood incidents that it will not be able to protect in its initial form. Do we want it to be able to do that? And if so, we need to make sure that we build that capability in um, because people are probably going to expect it. I mean, it's called a cyclone pool now, I think, not a cyclone and flood pool. So that might help people to think, oh, well, it might wasn't a cyclone-based one. But otherwise, if you're flooded, you'll think, well, Surely that thing's supposed to help me. Mm, yeah. So that's one of the problems I see. The other one is how can they get sufficient spread and diversification into there? So you do really, really want to make sure that you get a, a good diversification of risk inside that pool if you can. So 
are you going to get the high and the lower flood risk or are you going to get a way to get um, enough cross-subsidisation passing in? At the moment, you know, a lot of people in Australia don't buy flood because they're not exposed to flood um, or, or they believe they're not exposed to flood. They might find out sadly that they are. So if they're not buying flood, then there's nothing to be passed through. How are we going to make sure we get enough diversification in that pool, make sure that people are enrolled in it? Um, so, you know, I think there is a few issues like that. I think we also need to, like, it's good we have one. It's good we have one. It's going to have plenty of warts on it at the start. But, you know, let's look after it. Let's grow it. Let's give it a chance to go, you know, let's give our Cinderella a chance. Mm. Um, but, but what we do have to probably be aware that we can get, some, we're going to find out how much we're not covering in the initial rounds of it. And and I, I look definitely when the um when the draft legislation came out and I, I can remember it, it literally going through Parliament and being text sending texts and being texted by the guys and it, you know it only just but but that was the biggest fear that that once again we we could go to all of this effort and actually not get through and and then we wouldn't have anything to to debate and argue and tweak and change and move and and as you say. Um, help Cinderella because before we, we we literally had no market intervention at all and we were at the at the whim of a, a, a another insurance company maybe pulling out or or you know or have sold their their allocation of insurance and not being able to offer any more so um, you know forever the optimist Paula but I I you know couldn't agree with you more that you know it's there. Let's let's read the legislation now. Let's get the ACCC report starting to come through, and let's start and making sure we make the right recommendations to ensure this pool uh, has the greatest effect, um, and and we get some kind of parity with with premiums. Mm. Yeah. Now, one thing I, I I know we've gone on a little bit today, but I whenever we talk about insurance uh, or the reinsurance pool or, or anything like that, there's always a conversation that comes up around mitigation, and mitigation is actually tied in to to the work with the reinsurance pool. There's actually parts of it within the ledger. What's your take on on the conversation of mitigation, and and where has that been done really well? So in my team, we tend to refer to mitigation as the hot potato. Everybody <laughs> wants to pass it to somebody else, uh, you know. So everybody knows that it'll all be better if and, someone would do mitigation. And we've got three um, levels of government in Australia, so so our potato is is getting thrown around a lot. Yeah, in fact, we're, I mean, look, let me get a little plug. We're writing a book on these pools around the world. It'll be it's with Oxford University Press, and it'll be out next year. One of our chapters is on mitigation and resilience, and okay. we started with the hot potato conversation, which is, you know, insurance companies say, well, we, we wouldn't have to charge these high premiums if someone would do mitigation. Yep. And then everybody looks at who should do mitigation, and then we get in a, a – a, and this is one of the things that I think is a risk with cross-subsidization that I do want to point out. It does mark the pricing signal, and this is one of the things – insurers often say they're good at mitigation. Um, in all honesty – they're good at pricing mitigation, which is a different thing to mitigation itself. But they're good at saying, well mitigated, we'll price it lower. Badly well, well, mitigated, we'll price it higher. Well, they're good at if pricing you risk. Subsidize, yeah, yeah. Yes, they're good at pricing risk. Yeah. The well mitigated risk is lower priced. Yeah. If we cross subsidize the risk through a pool, we do mask that signal. We do allow, you know, places that are built in the wrong place and are not long term insurable to continue to be insured. 
So I think we need to say we are subsidising that, but we are masking a signal and to help, you know, really we need to then use what we know. And this is one of the values of a pool because it has to take the risk, right? It has to take the bad risk. It's got no choice. Then it also has an incentive because it has to pay the losses to start to really understand who's losing what and why. And given that some of that is probably going to be underwritten by the government, how do we stop this happening? Mm. So at the moment, all the trade-offs mean that as soon as the disaster's over, then, you know, the Minister for Housing goes, but, you know, we need more affordable housing, build more housing, don't worry about that. And, you know, somebody else, you know, goes, well, you know, we, we need to put through, a, you know, this is going to bring jobs to the area, we need to put this thing in. <laughs> and everyone forgets that. Whereas you got a pool and it's paying out the losses, hopefully it starts to, because it's already embedded in government at some level, to say, not on. You build there. Or, or after this date, you build in that spaces, you're not getting the money. Um, and so that it can both enforce the pricing side of it, but also it can start to use the very detailed loss knowledge it's got, which tends then to be in a more public domain. You know, it's not like an insurer who, A, has no levers. An insurer might know where the losses are happening, but it's got no levers to make things change. Mm. Um, what you need is levers in government that say, all right, just can't build there anymore. That area, every house there will be repossessed over the next 50 years because we are not allowing one more thing to be built there. And then you work out, okay, so now we're going to subsidise them while we phase them out, something like that. So this is, I think, where the, the line of mitigation is. Mitigation has to be done. Mitigation is actually changing the structures has to be done through building standards that are enforced, through, through planning authorities where places can't be built anymore, and through, um, you know, infrastructure and projects like that. Mitigation also has to be able to say, this isn't mitigable. This area, doesn't matter what you do, it's not going to be mitigated here. Therefore, what's our long-term plan for these people and how are we going to protect them in the shorter term when they're going to keep getting flooded or whatever? So that's the thing that I think is really important and it does play into a pool and particularly the kind of data that a pool has and the fact that a data is often a much more public domain rather than private knowledge IP type stuff. Um, so I think that's very important. Um, I, I, I want to draw a bit of a line between mitigation and resilience. I mean, so resilience is also how quickly you can get back to normal. So mitigation is will you get damaged in the first place. Resilience is how... Um, and having got damaged, how quickly can you get back to normal in very simple terms? How low do you go and how quickly can you get back? Insurance is going to play a key part in that, but so are the communities that are insured. You know, so how they respond when they get a disaster. That's the conversation I really want to see this pool start to help us have. I know that's the conversation you're having in Townsville. Yeah, oh, 100%. But I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more in relation to the... You know, I, I often hear people go, oh, let's just mitigate the risk. And you, you, you've re like you've correctly articulated, look, it's where you put things is one part, form of mitigation. How you build something, another form of mitigation. And, and, they're, and they're two highly technical and, and broad areas that, that need to be done almost separately because, you know, if you put the thing in the wrong spot and it's built fantastically well, it doesn't make any difference. And... Um, 
the, the first thing is around the planning, uh, and and we know like that's difficult. You know, uh, we, we're in in meetings with local government that have issues with with you know state based regulation that, that causes them problems, and vice versa, and 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 then federal overlays to it as well. So it's an incredibly complex situation. But the but as you say, tying that risk and and it actually costing someone now is a is a is a brilliant starting point for those conversations because everyone's got skin in the game now. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things why people might like to read our report on Switzerland because having been in the game for so long, they know that everything ends up on their desk. And so they've got a really strong set of links into the ecosystem for resilience because, as you know, that's an ecosystem. It's not just one lever. It's the, well, we have to have housing. It has to be affordable. We have to phase people out. You know, yep. it's not a single decision, build a levy. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Or, you know, build a bank and it'll all be fine. Oh, look, Paul, we could talk for hours on this, but we've, we've almost, you know, we've, we've been chatting for a while now. I, I'd, I really appreciate your time and I, I really appreciate you sort of talking about these in a, in a you know, very palatable manner, mind you. I know you, you do a lot of research and a highly regarded academic, but you, you, you're fantastic to talk to. You, <laughs> we should get you up here to do a Chamber on Tap series one night or something like that and, and uh, everyone can come and, and find a little bit more about about this highly complex industry because you do break it down beautifully and, and uh, put it into to bite-sized um, chunks for people to absorb. So I... I really thank you and, and, and your team down there uh, for, for connecting us. I, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And just a plug, that's us at University of Queensland. Oh, sorry, University yeah. of Queensland cares about it. <laughs> yeah, you know. um, but also, I'd just like to say, would you mind to tell my husband how good I am to talk to? Oh, no, no. I don't get involved in any of that sort of... I've got three daughters, Paula. So, uh, yes, I know my place. Uh, I don't get involved in any of that sort of stuff. <laughs> Really nice to talk to you, Ross. And look, these are important issues. They're not going away. Anytime you want to have another talk or certainly I'd love to come up and talk to your constituents. Uh, this is a problem for Australia and Australians are going to be able to solve it. Fantastic. I love your attitude and, and please, yeah, um, get your team to flick me on a report from here, uh, you know, whenever you can. And uh, I'm, I'm one to share things and, and make sure our community is informed as well. So, so thanks heaps, Paula. Super. Okay. Have a, have a nice day. evening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Townsville Chambercast. Remember to subscribe so you're the first to know when new episodes are released. The Townsville Chamber of Commerce would like to acknowledge our corporate partners. James Cook University, 106.3 Star FM, External IT and NQAV for their continued support.